Thank you. Psalm 126. What a joy. One of the beauties of being here is to remember how God has blessed you as a church and your missionary endeavors as a church sending out missionaries and the involvement that uh, all the pastors through the years, I think, have shown this interest, not just to have something here that is important, and yes, to really extend the labors to the ends of the earth. And I do believe that you've had pastors here at this church, elders, and those who have had such a uh, involvement in the other nations of the earth and taking the gospel. Not that something would come back to you, except that the Lord's blessing and his commandment and the joy of spreading the gospel to others. And I do believe this is a church with beautiful feet. And so we are thankful. We turn to Romans chapter 10 this evening, and our message this evening has to do with this unique charter that God has given to his church. And as we look at this, we begin with Romans 10. After last night reading of the, the uh, passion that is divine that God has given to the Apostle Paul and gives to all Christians as we are his people. We have a passion for his glory and for the salvation of his people. So we come to Romans 10 and we read this very personal word to the Jews. Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, passionate for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And so if you stop just for a moment and realize, yes, they had passion, but it was not according to the biblical understanding of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this, it was not based on the gospel. They think they can establish their own righteousness. Oh, all this with one sense of help from Christ and all this with understanding of certain things, but that is the Messiah to come, and yet they were adding this to their own goodness and their own righteousness. And uh, so when we come to this passage, we must not fail to see that Christ is the Messiah. He is the righteousness of God. And everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles, have complete righteousness in Jesus Christ. So as we come to this, there is this message that's given that he is the fulfillment, the telos, the culmination of it all is Jesus Christ. And so we read on of uh, how we can really look into the face of our judge and see Jesus Christ who is our Savior. And so we read, uh, come down with me to verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's that great reformation principle 
solus Christus. Christ alone is all our righteousness. Christ alone is the one upon whom we call. If you're here this evening, just to know that it's not anything we do with our magical words of saying a certain phrase or somehow or another that we do some kind of works that might even be faith and and repentance and all these things. It's Christ and Christ alone that is our righteousness. He is our righteousness and so we come to this passage and and realize as it speaks here with such clarity of one who is lord jesus is lord and certainly some six thousand times the septuagint refers to this one that we translate through the old testament and into the new as lord and it's that one who is yahweh his very name, to call upon his name, the Lord, the one who is very God of very God. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. And so we come to this text this evening, verses 14 and 15, that we call the great charter of missions. And the reason we speak of it as the charter, it's because here, through the Apostle Paul, Paul who is the spokesman of Christ. He's the authorized spokesman of Christ. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, authorized by Christ himself to speak the very words of Christ. And here is what we will call the charter for the church of Christ in missions. Verses 14 and 15. And a charter in this sense is what I would speak of here as that which is given by the sovereign giving those privileges and powers to his people. This is our charter. Here are our privileges, our powers to function as the people of God to take forth the message to the ends of the earth. And so when we read these verses, to see that we have this sovereign, our sovereign grants powers and privileges to us and how we are to have life together as the people of God. Verses 14 and 15, we read these words. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Notice, of whom they have not heard. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, and how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let us pray. Father, we do tremble to think what we have been granted, what privileges and what powers as a people We've been given this charter to cover the earth with the glory of the knowledge, yes, the knowledge of the glory of your name. We pray that you'd awaken our our very hearts this evening with whatever breath, life, days we may have, that Christ would be magnified. We thank you afresh for this charter. In Jesus' name, amen. What we like to do with this passage is focus for a few moments on the very great importance of the message that we have. That is, we have been given the message. And as it speaks here of that, what we might say, uh, bringing the message, uh, I don't think we are to take this uh, in one sense a beautiful feat as some kind of uh, a literal thing that, you know, let's take our shoes off and see who has beautiful feet, you know, in some unusual sense here. But it has to do with the one arriving. They would arrive uh, walking and coming with the message. And they're the beautiful feet of those who come with that message. And so when we come to this passage, it's dealing with this message that is to be proclaimed the gospel, the good news, the wangelion, this word that has good news. 
as you turn back to what he's quoting here to Isaiah chapter 52. There, Isaiah 52, we read verse 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know. That is, I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And certainly that is the good news. Your God reigns. A world of chaos, wars, shootings, everything you can add up, the ugliness of plague and pestilence, our God still reigns. And we have a message that's absolutely needed in our day. So when we come to this, I believe it's speaking in one sense in Isaiah to good news to those who have been captives in Babylon. And here comes the good news to them. Your God reigns. And yet here in the book of Romans, I believe it is even more specific to us. Our God reigns. We have, yes, a message that liberates us from the captivity of sin. It's a reality for us. Our God reigns. And so when we come to this, I do want to pause for a few moments and kind of chat a little bit here. I think there's something important here, the message. Uh, you know, we kind of think of the message almost in our day. I don't know, you remember if you, uh, you know, the television, we'd have the, the baseball game or whatever it was, and there'd be this guy holding up a sign, here's the gospel, and it had simply J-O-H-N 3 colon 16. You know, John 3.16, there's the gospel. And yet, Certainly, I think we could probably, in unison, probably in the King James Version, you know, do for God so love the world and, and go through that. And yet, isn't there an importance to see that the message is more, certainly there it is, but there's something of doctrinal teaching that surrounds and, and brings to the front the very meaning of all those words of John 3.16. And we need to have that understanding. And it's the same good news for Jews and Gentiles. It's not one for Jews and one for Gentiles, but it's the same charter for both of them, how they are to be reached. And from Genesis to Malachi, there's a sense in which I believe we have that element of, of uh, all the preparation that was there. And yet as the Jews went through that, what they kept looking for was something of power, miracles. And then, of course, remember the Greeks, they were the, the philosophers. Put it in intellectual language, and, and we want to see how intellectually, academically, you can put all these things. So when we come to this, we kind of have to ask, what are the essentials as Christians what are those things, you know, sometimes we talk about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, charity and all these other things, but there should be a unity in the essentials. But then the question comes, what are the essentials? And I think that's important for us to think about a little bit, especially in this area of missions, and ask the question, can churches even work together? I mean, every church kind of has its all those little lean-tos that we've built and how important each one is to us. But sometimes we have built lean-tos, little buildings that are important to us, but they're not part of the foundation. They're not part of the great gospel edifice. And we need to realize, what are lean-tos? Christ's church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. I think the world kind of looks at us with, you know, what is it, three, four hundred or more denominations of different ones in this country and kind of thinks these stupid Christians 
All they're trying to do is see who's the most important among them. Who has the biggest number of congregation? Who has, and on and on, who's the most important? And it's almost like tribes trying to, you know, our group against this group, and we're doing when there should be something that brings us, and I'm not speaking here of liberals and modernists who deny the gospel. I'm saying those who really should be able to work together and pray and see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. I believe there's an importance in that. And yet there's been a fighting almost among us. Those who know history well, some of my friends, they speak of the Puritans and others would say, what took place? What was it that brought the Puritans down in different ways? And certainly there was persecution. There was government persecution. But there was also a fighting among them. And it brings down anyone. When a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. So I speak of this as, as element of the message. And uh, everyone seems to have their particulars and everything is so important, but many of these things are not foundation. They're not the edifice of the good news of the gospel. Where is John chapter 17 among us? I know it's after chapter 16. But look at it with me. John 17. Look at Jesus' prayer. Amazing what he prays. Verse 20, he prays, my prayer is not for them. And it's not just for the apostles, those disciples that were with him. My prayer is not just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word or through their message. What is he saying? He's praying for us, for you. As you have come to believe through the New Testament that the apostles wrote, you have come to believe through their word. And his prayer has been answered. Here we are tonight. And then he prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Part of the message is that we are one. That's part of the message to the world. Or turn back a few more pages. John chapter 13, you know the passage well. This majestic sermon that Christ has of washing the disciples' feet. And then that new commandment in verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I believe it was Francis Schaeffer said that was the ultimate apologetic that Christians would actually love one another. It's a strange thing that Christians would love one another. <laughs> and yet, it seems like there was such a, that, that they needed to be exhorted to love one another because Christ has prayed that we would love one another. Even the reformers, there was this haggling, fighting with each other, almost not realizing the importance of they're loving one another and being with one with each other. Again, I'm not speaking of modernists and liberals. I'm speaking of those who believe the word of God. Old John Calvin, when he was asked he, about certain issues that were non-essentials really, he advised them not to divide over that, not to have those lean-tos be things that would divide Christians, but rather be united on those great things of the foundation of Christianity. Now, what are they? Uh, I would just propose to you something that I think is important, and that is the, the, in 16, I believe uh, the date uh, of uh, 
1654, Oliver Cromwell had what was called the Act of Toleration. And in this, he appointed 11 Puritans. And he had a purpose in this. He believed that they needed to have a great unity among them. And he appointed 11 different Puritans to work through what would be like the foundational essential truths. And I believe these were important things that they put forward. The principal Puritans that we probably would recognize would be old John Owen. What did he write? 16 volumes of his, his writings. Uh, there's another seven volumes on the book of Hebrews. And then he has a book that I don't think any of you read through yet. It's all in Latin. It's volume 24. Thomas Watson, the other one well-known, his body divinity. Thomas Goodwin, some of you have read uh, Gentle and Lowly, I think, if our brother has done his work well here. He's been giving these out to different ones, and it has all these quotes from Thomas Goodwin. These were well-known, godly men who grew up seven, eight, nine years old, and they already were reading Greek and Hebrew. Their blood was Bibline. They bled the scriptures. They knew the word of God. So they wrote together these statements of uh, the word of God. Now, let me say once again, and I need to caution this, because you can very easily take me the wrong direction. I want you to understand clearly, we are not for diluting, watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way. When Paul says, for I have not failed, I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole will, the whole counsel of God. We are not holding back God's word in any way. But at the same time, there are some truths that are foundational. And we hold to those together. And there are other things that I would call lean-tos. We seem to believe that. <laughs> we lean to that direction. I think I'm right. But it's not something I'm going to divide over. And I believe in missions, this is important that we can work together. Let me give you a few of these that they have, that they wrote up. There were actually 16 of them. I won't give you all of those this evening because I don't want anybody in the back, especially to go to sleep back there. We'll hang in there together, all right? But number one, that the Holy Scripture is the rule of knowing God and living unto him. Number two, that there is a God who is the creator, governor, and judge of the world, which is to be received by faith. And every other way of the knowledge of him is insufficient. That this God is the creator, this God that is the creator is eternally distinct from all creatures in his being and blessedness. That is, he is not his creation, and his creation is not he. He's distinct. He is God. Or number four, that this God is one in three persons. Or number five, that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man without the knowledge of whom there is no salvation. Number six, that this Jesus Christ is the true God. Number seven, that this Jesus Christ is also true man. That this Jesus Christ, number eight, is God and man in one person. Number nine, that this Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, who by paying a ransom and bearing our sins has made satisfaction for them. I could go on, but you can get a feel that there are these great central truths. They're not things that we really differ in the sense of of the gospel, the foundation things, and we are to be united in those things. But the lean-tos leave them off. Yes, maybe as our local church, we have a unity on those things, but there's a broader working together in missions. Great importance in this, the foundational message, the gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing. It's good news. It's the message that he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning of God's written word and the end of God's written word. He is that which we need for life. Yes, for salvation itself. The second element to this 
is controlled by the message. It's controlled very much so that the message controls the method that we use. And as you'll see, it also controls this message, controls the means that we bring the message to the world. And that's why the message is so important to have an understanding of this gospel and its fullness. It's not just a sign with John 3.16. There's a depth, power, and beauty that we're ever enjoying the beauty of the gospel. So second, with me, please see this all important, the method given in the charter. And it's the same charter for Jews and Gentiles. There's not one charter for one and another charter for the other. The passage of Scripture we've read, there's one charter for both, all peoples, everywhere. What are these powers and privileges of our charter? Paul gives them to us, and let me give them to you in reverse order. If you have your Scriptures there, you can look down and see with me. He speaks of those who are bringing the message those who are sending, those who are preaching, those who are hearing, those who are believing, and those who are calling. And the reason we put it in, in reverse there is so that we can kind of go back through this and see how we trace it back and how in order to get the end result, we begin all the way back with the message and the sending of the messenger. So starting with the bringing of the message, we've already spoken how the feet are not literal, that we would like to see how pretty are his feet over here. But it has to do with bringing the message, coming. There is a beauty to those who are as missionaries, we could say, who are bringing the message. But then it speaks immediately, they must be sent. Missionaries, the very word, they have been put on a mission. They're not self-appointed. They've been given gifts to do the work they're sent to do. But it's the church. They're given by Christ to the church. And I do think it's important for us to realize there are different levels of those who are sent out with different purposes. Just as the other evening we talked about the Yaka Indians and those five young men who sacrificed their lives, gave their lives to reach the Aukas. If you go through the background of those five young men, they were very different in their gifts, some with preaching, some with Nate Saint as a pilot. And, and uh, each one, as you go through, they had gifts that were different. And this brother can do that, which that guy can't do. And likewise, he can't do what he can do. But they are working together. And there are those who are elders who are sent forth in that preaching word. And there are others who are support, diaconal support, working together in the work of missions. There's a team effort that's here being spoken of. There's something here that the churches need to wake up to. Sending out missionaries has to do with churches recognizing, taking the initiative to send out missionaries to do the work that Christ has them to do. Now, we, we can speak of uh, certainly uh, some of our patron saints, uh, William Carey, and uh, we often talk about with others the uh, Serampore Trio of William Carey and William and Hannah Ward and Joshua Marshman. And uh, they were those who were very special in that historic moment of the church and, and uh, things that God used them to do there in India and Serampore, colleges and all that took place. But I want to pause there and, and caution us. There's something almost that takes place that we think we can have a, a halo, especially upon these kinds of men. They were men that I would like to just entitle those three especially as all too human. And if you go through who they were and their diaries and people's evaluation and, and something about the Serampore trio that God used so mightily in history, you find that one of them was quite autocratic. 
Another one, his translations were criticized by others. Uh, another one, the reality was, uh, boy, I don't even like to mention it, but the reality was he really didn't do too well as a husband. His first wife went insane. Um, probably if I kept going a while, you'd kind of say, why would we have sent these guys out? But you know what? There's an importance here to realize that all of us are all too human. We need to realize that people are real. And yes, God does give grace. But we're all sinners in that sense. They, some of them had trouble with keeping all their finances together and keeping their records together. They got in trouble with those back home about not getting their correspondence done. They were real guys. The great Serampore Trio. Again, at the same time, they were men of truth. William Carey was a, what we'd call an evangelical Calvinist. He loved those writings of Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd. He feasted upon those things during his time. The free offer of the gospel. When he came to see something, the beauty of the grace of God, he read a book called Helps to Zion's Travelers. And he says, these doctrines are the joy of my heart to this very day. He believed to take the gospel to all peoples everywhere and that for the church to have indifference about this was criminal. And he raised his voice against the passivity of the church in his day. And it wasn't always they were without food at times when he first went and there was uh, the difficulties of his first wife dying and his second wife dying, the loss of children, and we could go on, and there was great cost. They did something, though, that I think was very special. They had, as you think of these men who were all too human, at the same time, they had a love for each other. Sinners, but somehow or another, they really loved each other, enjoyed each other, were for each other. And even when they disagreed and had differences, and they had differences, there were elbows that were thrown. But they loved each other. They had a covenant that they read three times a year publicly and committed themselves anew to. I think we set that out there for you to have concerning William Carey. I think most of you have a copy of it. We may have run out, but uh, it's set there before you of what, how they formulated this covenant agreement and uh, 11 promises. Let me read some of these for you. To set an infinite value on men's souls. To acquaint ourselves with the snares which hold the minds of the people. To abstain from whatever deepens India's prejudice against the gospel. To watch for every chance of doing the people good. To preach Christ crucified as the grand means of conversion. To esteem and treat Indians always as our equals. To guard and build up hosts that may be gathered to care for the people of God to edify them, to cultivate their spiritual gifts, ever pressing upon them their missionary obligation, their missionary obligation, since Indians only can win India for Christ, to labor unceasingly in biblical translation, to be instant in the nurture of personal religion, and then finally, to give ourselves without reserve to the cause not counting even the clothes we wear our own. Is not there a place for those who are all too human to really band themselves together with the great purpose of preaching Christ, which is in that order of things of this passage of Scripture after the sending? It's because these people have not heard of whom they have not heard Christ. They have not heard. They have not heard his voice, the voice of Christ. And that's the voice we need to give to the people, his voice. Those 
who are sent, they need to speak of whom the people have not heard. They're deaf. They can't hear, yet the Lord can open their ears to hear. And that's what only God can do. And then there's the hearing, and that's the work of God to open their ears. There's the believing so that they would be joined to Christ. There's that calling. And let me say something just in speaking to you as parents here. We should be urging our children to call upon the name of the Lord. You have been sent to them to teach them the gospel, the good news. You have been sent to them to show them the good news of Christ. It's not that you just pray one time or they really pray with you and say, yes, Lord, save me. You, you bring them to Christ constantly. You bring them to call upon the name of the Lord constantly. It's not something you did one time in, in 2012. It's something that, yes, you lead them to Christ, and yes, the Lord takes hold on them. So I would urge you not to just think of somehow or another praying a prayer, and by that you're leading your children to Christ, but it's that you're leading your children to Christ daily, constantly, ongoing, leading them to Christ. Then, just for a few brief moments here, Quickly, let's look at the means that Christ has given to bring the gospel to the nations. Look with me at those words of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You're familiar with those, I'm sure, in that you've probably had messages on the flexibility that we need to have in taking the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, we have these famous words to the weak I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now, think with me for a moment. What are the means? What are the possible means that we have as a church, as individuals, to spread the gospel? We have something here very important. You remember the Moravians. You've probably read about the Moravians maybe. They had a a prayer meeting for a hundred years. Now, they had it 24-7, and they had it 365 a year for a hundred years. They worked through all their different people, and they all had times that they prayed, and this was an ongoing thing, such an amazing thing to think, you know, maybe... Uh, how in the world is goes beyond our understanding, doesn't it? And yet, there was a period of about three or four years where they sent out 165 missionaries. These little group called the Moravians. In those years, there was some 5,000 churches that were established. They weren't some great important group with great funds, but it was the priesthood of all believers. They used the means of prayer and of sending missionaries. They took the initiative in this thing. So all the means to send forth the message, and the message will control how we use the means. Now, I mean by that, that sometimes we get very aggravated with uh, the internet it has all this terrible stuff or I don't know what are these other things called Uh, I'll get them wrong Facebook Twitter I don't know what are all these names it all just seems to multiply out there and there's something new and somebody else has made 10 billion dollars on this one and something else has taken over and I didn't even know about the one three times before that but it's not that these things, these means, are evil in and of themselves. It's they have been filled with garbage and stuff that's not important. God has given us means that we are to use, whether it's a barbecue to invite people to in our backyard, or it's the means of taking the gospel to a tribe that does not have the name of Jesus in their language yet. How are we to take the gospel and use the means to get that gospel to those people? 
and we are to use all the possible means. Now, let me recommend to you a book, Vishal Mangawadi. Anyone here even heard of Vishal Mangawadi? One person. Let me recommend. He has written some wonderful books on William Carey. And of course, he's from India and knows something of the history of India. And if you know a little bit about William Carey, of course, we know him as the, the, the father of modern missions, translated the scriptures in some 40 different languages and all this. But Vishal, in his imagination, says, let's just think about a great quiz of all the universities and all the top students together. And we ask the question, who is William Carey? And of course, someone says he's a missionary. And of course, he left England and never came back again. And he spent his life there taking the gospel to them. But there was another hand that went up and said he was a botanist. He published the first book of botany in India. He has a eucalyptus tree named after him. He collected all of these different plants from all over India. Amazing what took place. Someone else says, no, he's really the industrialist of India. He had the first steam engine in India. He was manufacturing his own paper. There was actually a problem because the, the Indian people would put a, a rice coating on their paper when they'd publish books. And so when he'd publish a book using the paper they had, the bugs would eat his books. So he even began to grow his own trees so he would get the wood to use for his paper, for his books, and manufacture this and put it together. And he had to have a steam engine to do these things so it wasn't just manual labor. Someone else says he was an economist because he had a great influence in seeing banks started because of the tremendous problem of usury. Interest rates of 36 to 72%. And so there was a need for banks. All the possible means to take the gospel to these people. Newspapers. He printed the first ever newspaper printed in an oriental language. Women's rights. Now we'd say, whoa, we don't want to get involved. But very important element. He stood up for the women's rights. If you're familiar with India, there was this terrible thing called sati. It was this element that when the widow, when the husband died and then the widow, she had to cast her own body upon the burning ashes of her husband and die herself because she was only property of the husband. And so therefore she was to die with him. It was William Carey who publicly voiced God's law says no to this. The gospel was made known as he stood against child marriages, as he stood against polygamy. And there was, in 1829, the law passed in India banning sati. An astronomer, he showed the wonder of the stars and the planets as he spoke against the whole area of astrology, that it's really only God alone who directs all of life and not the stars or the planets. Now, we might be say, we might be those who would say, whoa, we don't want to get involved in any of this. But here he was bringing all of these things together to make known the word of God, to make known the gospel by all possible means. Now, what are we to do in our day? How are we to send forth the gospel? Yes, it's important for us to hold the rope of those who go down into the dark places of the earth with the gospel and care for them and love them. That's a very important part of things. Turn with me to a passage we looked up just in these days and thought was so pertinent to our, our time together. Third John. Third John. What chapter? Chapter 1. If you're still awake back there, hang on. Third John chapter 1, yes. Verse 6, we read this. 
speaking, I believe, of missionaries. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans of the Gentiles. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality, care for them to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. We are to send them forth in a worthy manner to care for them as we would be holding the rope as they go forth. And I think that's an important point. How do we care for the missionaries we send out? And it's not just a matter of finances and support and money, but it has to do with keeping contact, visiting with them, caring for them, loving them, being concerned for their children, making them know they're not alone. Yes, Christ is with them, but showing that true compassion and love to them and care to them. Now, it can sound almost like the missionaries do this. And I don't want us to stop there because missions is right here who we are. Yes, with our children, first of all. And if we lose our children, what should it profit us if we gain the whole world? But I want you to read with me, and we do this in closing, and thank you for your patience this evening. But I want us to think a bit together. What are our responsibilities? I don't know that you have been sent to Kenya. Or over here, yes, we do need someone right now in Mexico. There's places that we need help, and someone could go there and really serve Christ. And yes, those of you who are here holding the rope for those who do go to foreign lands and tribes and other places of the earth. But it does really start right here. You don't become somehow another the missionary by going from Dallas to Santiago, Chile, down into Punta Arenas, the end of the earth. It really does have to do with who we are right here. Look at the handout I gave to you. It's something of what I believe the revival we need that old John Calvin, with ruggedness, I think, speaks to this. And he says, let us learn that we constitute a true church of God when we try our best to increase the number of believers And then each one of us, where we are, will apply all our effort to instructing our neighbors and leading them to the knowledge of God as much by our words as by our showing them good examples and good behavior. That is also why Holy Scripture exhorts us so often to win to God those who remain alienated from his church. For we see unbelievers as poor lost sheep. Our Lord has not given us insight into his truth for our advantage alone, but for sharing with it, sharing it with others, because we see them as madmen casting themselves into hell. We must, to the extent we can, prevent them from doing so and procure their salvation. Again, let me remind you, this is old John Calvin that believed in the sovereignty of God. But he also believed we have a great responsibility. That, I tell you, is the zeal of all Christians must have if they are not to limit themselves just to the public worship of God. They are to seek to encourage everyone to come willingly and be joined to our Lord Jesus Christ so that there will be only one God, one doctrine, and one gospel. Let us be so closely joined that we will all be able to speak with one voice as we call upon, our, upon God our Father. Unless we do that, we give a clear indication that we have scarcely learned anything in the school of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Each of us must extend our hand to our neighbor and encourage one another to grow more and more in the knowledge of God's truth which he has been pleased to reveal to us. And we see, when we see someone fall short, let us correct him with gentle admonitions and point out how we must serve God and forsake our 
iniquity. And then he adds this little word. That is not said only to preachers and those who expound the word of God. It is the charge of all Christians in general, as Paul says. We're all, in that sense, sent by the Lord. Missionaries. And that's, yes, that's the charter we've been given. We have privileges to tell others of Christ. We have powers to speak that word with the authority of God himself. And we have an urgency, I believe. Last week, our son of our next-door neighbor who had just gone through a divorce, 53 years old, I believe, Blaine, died in his sleep. And I'd had some good conversations, but never really confronted him with the gospel. Every day, we have opportunities. May God give us wisdom to speak the truth to those around us. Let us pray. Father, we do believe that you have given us the privilege of having beautiful feet to bring the message that you have sent us with a message that you have sent us with that's so urgently needed in the world all around us right now. And we pray, oh God, you touch our hearts afresh, touch my heart in such a way that, oh Lord, Christ would be made known, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. We thank you again for your word to us this night that you have a strategy. Yes, you have a charter given to us to see the world come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.